Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. In this season, we are thankful that we get the opportunity to live in a world of ideas, talk to interesting people, learn from them, and develop opinions and ideas of our own. Here at In Social Work, we're thankful that people listen to our production, so we express our sincere gratitude to you. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, from the whole In Social Work podcast team. I'm Peter Sabota. In the second of a two-part episode, our guests, Drs. Deborah Ortega and Ashley Hanna, discuss the narratives commonly associated with DACA recipients and immigrants and argue that these narratives need to be reconstructed. They share the more rarely discussed but accurate stories of these individuals, including the trauma and re-traumatization they face. Our guests conclude part two by hypothesizing what DACA recipients can expect in the future and what social workers might be called to do now. Deb Ortega, Ph.D., is professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work, and Ashley Hanna, Ph.D., is assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Social Work. Our guests were interviewed in September of 2017 by Mary Kiovasai, a Ph.D. student here at the UB School of Social Work. When the news started coming out that DACA was likely to be rescinded, it sounded like a lot of politicians from both sides seemed to oppose the decision. And there was also a narrative around DACA recipients as hardworking, good immigrants. How do narratives around who is a good immigrant versus who is a bad immigrant influence coalition building across communities? This is Ashley, and I can start. I'd ask for Deb to chime in, and we might share this response here. I think it's such an important question because throughout history, we've continued to have this ongoing debate about who's deserving and who's undeserving. And this includes in social work as well. So when we're engaging in discussions about DACA recipients, it's so very important that we do not create a hierarchy of who is better. For example, a U.S.-born citizen, a naturalized citizen, a permanent resident, an unauthorized immigrant. It's these types of hierarchies that are so very common given the racist nativist system in the United States that really truly is designed to divide individuals based on various identity statuses like citizenship, immigrant status, race and ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religion, and so many other identities. Nationality, immigration status, and race are all socially constructed they don't represent objective differences. The truth is that naturalized U.S. citizens are no better or worse than unauthorized immigrants, just as a U.S.-born citizen is no better or worse than a naturalized U.S. citizen. So the thought that one group is better or more deserving than another is a narrative perpetuated by white supremacy. This narrative creates divisions I think the way that this can play out or how we can see it being really dangerous is because we live in a system where structural oppression exists and some individuals are treated better based on 
their race and nationality. So, for example, our society provides white native-born U.S. citizens with a lot of privileges that immigrant groups do not have, that people of color do not have. And so within this structure, it creates these divisions. So someone that I was speaking with was talking about how because she came over, she's now a naturalized U.S. citizen, and she has an accent, she's college educated, is super successful, but she's noticed that she's been treated really poorly, and oftentimes, because she's of Mexican descent and has an accent, is treated although she's unauthorized or an undocumented immigrant, and she was saying, this isn't fair, right? And so in order to protect herself from those kinds of racist and nativist actions, she kind of separates herself out as like, hey, I'm a U.S. citizen. And that can be really dangerous because what happens is this system takes that division and exploits it. So by creating someone to feel that they're better or better than another group based on this very subjective determination of who's a U.S. citizen or who's an authorized citizen versus someone else, creates these divisions and separations that really disempowers the group as a whole. And so what I really come from within social work is I really like to highlight the importance of acknowledging the dignity and worth of every individual. And that is one of our core values as social workers. Our country definitely would be a much better place if everyone, regardless of immigration status, gender, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, and all our other identities were treated with dignity and respect. But unfortunately, this is not the way the U.S. is structured. So for me, as a white U.S.-born citizen, I have to acknowledge that I live in a system that privileges me in most every way. And I recognize that this nation was born out of white supremacy, was born out of the genocide of Native peoples, of chattel slavery, and on the backs of immigrants. This is a reality that we as members of the U.S. society really need to come to terms with so that we as a nation can become our best selves. The reality is we live in a very unjust society. And I see this current discussion around DACA as an opportunity for all marginalized groups to come together to support one another and to put a stop to the divisions put between us by those powers. So these divisions truly only serve the white elite or the few that hold all of the power and wealth in this nation. And these same divisions harm the majority and maintain the status quo, which is a divided and racist and nativist nation. So really, when I look at this issue and the way that we speak about DACA, my only hope for the present and really for the future of our nation is for the majority of us living in the U.S. that represent the diverse world in which we live is for us to come together to treat each other with dignity and respect and to put a stop to the hate created by the white supremacist system that's so prevalent in our world. And as that, you know, saying goes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I truly believe it. So I urge allies and every marginalized group really to come together to support one another including but not limited to unauthorized immigrants, recipients of DACA, people of color who are in constant danger of being racially profiled or attacked because of the color of their skin, the LGBTQ community, women, and all other identities. 
And then on top of that, we really have to acknowledge and support those with intersecting identities who are regularly attacked in multiple ways and on multiple fronts simply for being who they are within a system that oppresses multiple aspects of their own identities. Could you elaborate on the ways that the U.S. immigration policies can be re-traumatizing to a vulnerable population? This is Deb. The issue of immigration for any country is complicated, and it's partly complicated by the way that that country actually engages in multiple kinds of policies. So in terms of the United States in this particular topic, there's a lot of trauma that happens to the families, especially as social workers that we see. And and that trauma is what I call stacked trauma. So when people immigrate here, we used to talk a lot about how they were immigrating like to get a better life, to get the American dream, to to have a better economy. But that's actually not necessarily the context for which a lot of people have immigrated here, especially from Latin American countries. So for instance, we've had policies that have encouraged violence in countries. Most of the guns that are in Mexico come from the United States. Mexico has some of the strongest gun laws in the world. Last time I checked, I haven't done this recently, but last time I checked, I think there was only one place you could buy a gun in the country. So those guns come from actually our open gun policy in the United States. Then there's violence in communities. So people are escaping violence that has happened to them, sometimes because of their a cultural minority group, like the Mayans, and are being targeted for violence because they're different. People immigrate because of gangs and their families are threatened if their sons don't participate in gangs, and there's violence. It's not like someone just walks up and says, oh, you know, I'm going to hurt your mom if you don't come in the gang. There's a lot of violence that sets that up before that even becomes someone's thought or reality, right? And lots of, I mean, we have issues around femicide in the world. Latin American countries have had some of the highest rates of femicide. So people go through great lengths, especially when they're also immigrating from other countries, they have to actually cross through Mexico. We have a policy in which we give Mexico money to protect their southern border better. We do that. Actually, other countries use the same method because they can actually give money to another country and not feel like they're responsible for human rights violations. So we give Mexico money to protect those borders. If human rights violations happen when they are incarcerating immigrants, it's not our problem, right? It's their problem. That's kind of our mentality. And then what happens is actually there's a lot of preying on immigrants who are coming through Mexico to come to the United States. Actually, it's very common for people to ride a train called La Bestia, the Beast. You know, it's like the way to come up through the from southern Mexico up to the north. And there's a lot of violence and gang violence. There's rape. In fact, and I don't think very many people talk about this, but women who know that they're going to have to cross through Mexico and cross through the desert, separating Mexico and the United States, proactively have birth control injections that last for a long period of time because they know it is not just possible, but probable that they'll get raped. And because many people have religious prohibitions around abortion, they don't want to bear the child of their rapist. 
So they're traumatized when they come through Mexico, they get to the U.S. border, and they're, they're traumatized again because crossing the border is very dangerous. When you make that crossing so much more risky than people who are also very disreputable are involved in that, there's violence, there's sexual violence, Older people are left in the desert to die. We have lots of evidence of this. People die of thirst. Our own border patrol pours out water that's left for people so they don't die. So their lives are of such little value that it's not even worth keeping them alive to deport them back, right? So they pour out water. There's actually a film called The Trail of Hope and Terror, it's a documentary about justice experience. And so there's all this trauma experience as they're trying to cross the border. So they get to the United States and then they have the experience of being terrified that they're going to be deported back to some violent countries. They're terrified of what happens in immigration detention centers. Immigration detention centers are jails. I never thought I'd be a part of a country which jailed babies, small children, in which when they come across the border, if they're caught on the border, if they're deported, they're put in actually really horrible conditions. I know that there's narrative out there from some politicians who say, you know, oh, it doesn't seem so bad. I would love to see them live their life in an immigration detention center with their families, in which their children don't have real education, in which they're told how to raise their children or whether they can give their children babies milk. And there's no health care or poor health care or poor access. So there's all these ways that trauma happens. So they get to the United States. This is all happening. They're afraid about whether they're going to be deported. What begins to happen is this fear of deportation is rampant in the community. So everyone's hearing it and knows it's possible and knows people who've been deported, their own parents, their cousins and knows that it's not a just or fair process. And so this becomes re-traumatizing. Ashley was a school social worker, and we talked about during some of this time when this anti-immigrant sentiment was being ramped up, there was an increase in enforcement and raids actually in, in Colorado. We talked a lot because she was seeing seven-year-olds who were terrified that they were gonna come home from school and their parents were gonna be deported. They didn't know if when they got home from school, if their parents were going to come home. When Trump was elected, this is something that was very common. Young people, children, seven-year-olds, I can't imagine what it might be like at age seven to be afraid that if my mom comes, picks me up from school, she might get picked up and deported. And we act as if these things don't have a consequence. And I just would like to think about what happens when people are traumatized, re-traumatized, and their families then are traumatized because that often goes untreated. Well, because people can't access mental health services often because they can't afford them and that's not available to them or even health services, right? So they have untreated traumatization. They grow up in a country which is supposed to be their dream country that then hurts them, hurts their families, doesn't protect them, makes them at risk every day. And yet they don't really have viable options. And this sort of stacked trauma that is untreated really affects people many different ways. And sometimes I think about 
the child soldiers in El Salvador. You know, we were a very big part of that military junta and what happened in El Salvador during their civil war. We supported the government. There's a great movie. I know I love movies. There's a great movie called Innocent Voices that shows what the story of young boys in El Salvador was when they were being recruited. And so people immigrated after the Civil War. Young people immigrated or escaped to the United States because it was brutal and dangerous. A lot of them also went untreated. And what do you do when you feel completely powerless, when you've seen brutality and violence, when you're afraid all the time? It's not uncommon for people to try to figure out where their power is. I often wonder whether the consequences we have around El Salvadorian gangs, which are thought to be or spoken about as some of the most dangerous gangs, if this is a result really of our own making, because of how we supported that government, because of their experiences, because of the traumatization of their families and themselves. When you see so much violence, there's a variety of ways it can affect you, but it would not be uncommon for you to figure out how to have power in multiple ways. And some of this might result in some of the violence we see. And it, it concerns me that as a nation, we continue to think that we don't have to be responsible for the consequences of our own actions. For people who are experienced feeling somewhat safe for the moment, because they always, anyone who has DACA status knew it was for the moment, feeling safe for the moment and having their own experience of family members being deported and their own experience of family members experiencing violence. We're creating a situation in which re-traumatization does have and will have lasting impact on people and people who otherwise, given other opportunities, might make choices that are about contributing can find themselves having difficulty regulating emotions. Social workers who are interested can look up and see, you know, what is the impact of post-traumatic stress syndrome. These things are really about people struggling to regulate themselves because of how much trauma they've experienced. It seems like it's just a policy, but DACA is one policy of so many that have created a situation in which people of color who support an economy, who support U.S. economy, are maligned, dehumanized, are susceptible to violence. They're susceptible to unscrupulous lawyers who say they can get them citizenship status and they pay them lots and lots of money and it doesn't happen, or people who are day laborers and stand on the corner getting jobs, and which is, this is a very common experience in which they would work a week and maybe not get paid for that whole week, or they get paid for half that money, that they're is this amazing consequence of not just re-traumatization, but stress about just living a life. And, you know, people want to say, well, if it's so hard, why don't they just go back to their countries? And I think that the rest of that sentence is, why don't they go back to their countries where they can be raped, murdered? Well, they know that they're not safe, where their children are at risk, where actually 
Yes, they may be living in poverty, but not unrelated to some of the U.S. policies like NAFTA. So this re-traumatization is really a big topic and a big picture, but I think that gives you a sense of people who are interested in being really thoughtful about this process could maybe investigate ways in which they could think about what are these impacts. One thing I'd like to add, Deb, you brought up my experience in school social work. And so one of the things that I would see in schools as well when I was working in them and now since, and I've remained in contact with friends and colleagues in schools, is to think about secondary trauma. So within schools and students are coming, so when this new administration changed and really had a lot of fear, what would happen based on some of the campaign promises Trump was making regarding immigration. And so now we've seen these changes in DACA. And so a lot of my colleagues of color were saying students are coming to me because they trust me. They have more trust with me than with their teachers who tend to be white middle-class teachers. And so for those teachers of color, then there's the trauma of hearing these stories, of seeing these students and hearing the stories, but also not having the training to deal with what they're hearing. And also the increased burden that teachers of color and staff of color in K-12 education face because the students generally will be more likely to go to them for support because there is more trust there. And so I think that's another huge thing to think about. And so lots of the K-12 education system is very oppressive within itself. And so for staff and teachers of color who have gone through that system, they've endured their own traumas from that system, from learning of histories from the viewpoint of the oppressor, from not being given the appropriate support structurally as well, and then coming and seeing this happen to their students and then as additional policies are being implemented and they're watching kids come in and cry and be fearful and not be successful and then not having the skills and outlet for that. So I think that's just another way, just one other way. There are so many ways that we see how traumatizing these changes to immigration policy have been not just for those in immigrant families, but for professionals who are serving them as well. Now, after the announcement of the end of uh, the program, what should those with DACA do at this point? This is Ashley. I can speak to it a little bit. I'm not a lawyer, just putting that out there, which means that I can't definitively answer this question. That said, there's been lots of information that's put out by immigration lawyers to give direction to people who are currently recipients of DACA and for those who have already submitted their initial application or are waiting for that application or another one to be processed. And so most important is I highly recommend that individuals contact a trusted immigration lawyer and if a person can't afford that, to contact a trusted nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of immigrants for historically disenfranchised communities. And there's been a lot of news or suggestions from lawyers as well to stay away from notarios because you don't know how the background of these individuals, and as Deb brought up, you have to be very careful because not all people who are participating and presenting themselves as lawyers or with expertise 
are people who know what they're doing and have the best interest of their clients at heart. So that's just something to be aware of. Saying that, we also know that DACA is a liminal status and that anything can happen. So there are currently lots of changes being made with DACA, but the reality is nobody truly knows what this administration is going to do next. So I'll just share a few things to consider that I've seen on the USCIS website, um, lawyers' websites, and also in conversation with colleagues. So to understand that first, for those who are in fact currently protected through DACA, according to most reports, that they will continue to be protected until their DACA status expires. So it's not right now what the experts are saying. It's not that immediately people are going to be deported, but I think also to gain an awareness around what will happen when their status expires. And again, we don't know what this government is going to do, so it's important to be aware. Also on the USCIS website, it states that individuals should not apply for advanced parole. That's no longer being considered. Going along with that, individuals with DACA status should not leave the country as it's unclear if they'll be able to return if they do leave the country. Finally, I think this is a really important piece of advice for unauthorized immigrants, immigrants protected through DACA, and basically anyone who does not have U.S. citizenship or might be a targeted group, and that's to do their best really to remain control of their environment and stay out of activities or situations that might put them in contact with local law enforcement or ICE. So, for instance, not putting yourself in a situation that you're surrounded by illegal activities or individuals who might break the law. So, obviously, as a professor, I work on a college campus, and so underage drinking might be very common. And so advice to students with DACA is not to put themselves in situations where they're surrounded by friends who might be drinking. And similarly, to be really careful of who they drive with. So don't get in the car with someone who's irresponsible, someone who's had a drink, someone who's not a good driver and maybe is not following traffic laws like speeding, rolling stop signs, things of this nature. And of course, for individuals who are protected through DACA, not to have even one drink and then drive a car and to follow all traffic laws whenever possible. And that's because breaking any law right now could potentially put individuals of jeopardy in coming into contact with law enforcement. And, and as protections are starting to expire. I think this depending on local and state governments and the direction our federal government takes, really any interaction with law enforcement in that sense could be dangerous. And that said, there have been local law enforcement agencies that have come out and said, look, we want any individual, no matter your documentation status, to come to us to report crimes, to make sure that they feel safe with us. And that's really important, and that's one of the dangers of what Trump is doing by creating this fear is because that's not good for the community safety to create fear when individuals don't feel comfortable reaching out to police when a crime has been committed against them is a pretty scary thing. And so kind of even though I say be aware so that you don't put yourself in the situation that you'll be accused of a crime it's still knowing your local law enforcement agency. So if a crime is committed, you are able to keep yourself safe and make sure that that can get reported. 
And that can be a very scary thing for individuals. I think probably the most important piece of advice would be for everyone to remember that everyone has constitutional rights. So, for example, if an immigration agent is knocking on the door, do not open the door. And if you have a screen door, keep that shut and make sure that's locked. If that agent is at the door, to ask for a signed warrant from a judge to be slipped under the door. And if the warrant is in fact signed by a judge, only the person who is listed on that warrant should step outside the house and ICE shouldn't be invited into the house because otherwise unauthorized immigrants in the home could be in jeopardy. If there is no signed warrant, the, the advice generally has been that I've heard from lawyers, and again, I'm not a lawyer, don't open a door, don't engage in conversation. And for everyone to remember that they have the right to remain silent, so they don't have to answer any questions if an immigration agent is trying to talk to them. If a police officer asks your immigration status, you do not have to answer, and you should not answer. Basically, don't say anything without speaking to a lawyer, because everyone has that right to speak to a lawyer. If you're outside your home at the time that you come in contact with law enforcement, it's okay to ask the agent or the law enforcement official if you're free to leave. And if they say yes, it's that ability to leave calmly. And so that happened where I think I heard of an individual that they were witness to a car crash and kind of were in that vicinity and then to be able to, to leave and to ask because they weren't directly involved in that. And so these are just a few tips that I've heard from different sources. There's a ton of information online. So I really encourage people to go look online, contact immigration lawyers that are trusted within the community and kind of just collect that information to be able to share it. Deb, is there anything that I've said that you feel like is off or something that I've forgotten? Well, the only thing, and actually I hadn't thought about it until exactly this moment, is it would be helpful if people actually understood the sanctuary movement and sanctuary churches. We have sanctuary churches in Denver. I'm not exactly sure about the process for the church. It's probably very individual about how and when they choose to give sanctuary, but it would be important to know that information. What does all this mean for us as social workers? Social work, we're a field that recognizes, as I said earlier, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And it's our responsibility as social workers, and we're really called to address any and all injustices when and where we see them. So we are called to stand up to racism, sexism, heterosexism, nativism, classism, environmental injustices, and all types of oppression. This attack on DACA is an injustice, and I am a social worker, so this is about my values and the values of our profession. The debate around DACA truly is an opportunity for not only the field of social work, but for our entire nation to confront our racist and nativist history, as well as the contemporary racist nativism that we see. If we don't acknowledge the white supremacy our nation was built on, it will continue to pervade every aspect of our lives. For myself, as a white U.S. citizen brought up and educated in the U.S. system, it's really easy to deny this history of white supremacy. It's so easy for me to deny the benefits that I receive from this history. 
However, the choice to deny our true history and its implications means that we are actively consenting to racism, nativism, and a white supremacist nation that oppresses all people of color. So as a social worker, this truly does not fit my value system. The reality is it's the dominant white group that continues to vote for white government officials who are putting these policies and practices in place. And throughout history and even today, these public officials are responsible for maintaining these structures that oppress historically disenfranchised communities. Because of this history in my identity as a white middle-class U.S. citizen and social worker, it's my responsibility to be a leader and to actively engage and address the white supremacist and racist nativist policies and practices of our nation, like the decision to end DACA. I can no longer leave it to communities of color and other historically disenfranchised communities to address these issues on their own. They've been doing this work for too long. So really, truly, I see this as time for the white dominant community to take responsibility for our history and for creating and maintaining the white supremacist system in the U.S. And as social workers, what can we do to ensure that we look at issues around immigration through a human rights lens? It's funny about when we talk about who we are as social workers. Ashley and I see social workers that come in all sorts of perspectives. And for us, it sort of breaks down into thinking about it in two ways. There are people who believe that social work is just their profession. And then there are other people who believe that social work is who they are. So if you're a social worker who believes this is your profession, you're clocking in and out basically for your eight hours, then it's important to think about what is the impact to your individual client. So for instance, if you're working with families where immigration status is an issue, then making sure that they have a plan, should one of the parents get deported that someone actually has power of attorney, I think it's really important to understand that, yes, every day people are afraid of deportation. So if you hear children saying, you know, I'm scared, it's very inappropriate to dismiss this, that indeed they do feel scared. So you have to, it feels better for us to say, oh, don't worry, just think happy thoughts, or let's do relaxation. The threat is real. And so figuring out how do you talk to people of all ages when they come to you with concerns and being able to be present to their fears that are real fears. They might not be your fears, but they're definitely their fears. Um, I think you have to understand that if someone is an immigrant in this country and they don't have access to citizenship, this is not something that falls under mandating reporting. We are not legally bound, nor I think morally bound, to report that someone is deportable. Those kinds of issues are are really important to think about who your client is sitting in front of you. You should be as educated as possible about the context in which people come to you. So if you're providing therapeutic services and people are struggling to pay for it or you know, they're talking about how hard it is to live in this country to suggest that they might go back to their country of origin because it seems like it would be easier. It's just possible it might be easier to you, but not for them. 
because you might not really understand the violent context in which they live. If you're using translators or it's important to know if your client actually speaks Spanish. There are a number of people come from indigenous communities in which they may be have enough Spanish to maybe get by or no Spanish at all. And so the things that you're asking them to participate in and understand, they might not understand in Spanish. And they might need a translator who's more appropriate to their first language. Those are the things that I think are just professional social work. Ashley might have a perspective around what it does it mean to be actually embody social work values. Thanks, Deb. Deb and I talked about this and we both agree that we are both social workers through and through. And I think having that perspective is a great way to see any issue through a human rights lens. So social work is our value system. And for those who identify this way, using our code of ethics is a good way to ensure that we see all these issues through a human rights lens. So I want to paraphrase the NASW preamble because I think it's so important. According to our NASW code of ethics, as social workers, it is our primary mission to enhance human well-being and meet the basic human needs of all people with particular attention to the needs and empowerment of, of people who are historically disenfranchised, oppressed, and living in poverty. Fundamental to social work is its attention to the environmental forces that create, contribute to, and address societal ills. And truly a historic and defining feature of social work is the person and environment perspective, which is a guiding principle that calls social workers to focus on both individual well-being within our societal context and the well-being of our society. Social workers should be sensitive to cultural and ethnic diversity and strive to end discrimination, oppression, poverty, and other forms of social injustice. This is a responsibility of all social workers, whether they serve the community directly or indirectly at a micro, meso, or macro level. And so our mission as a profession is rooted in a set of core values. And these core values are the foundation of social work. And it truly is what sets us apart from other helping professions. So our value system includes service, social justice, dignity and worth of the person, the importance of human relationships, integrity, and competence. So using that as a guide is a good way to not only see an issue, but also practice through more culturally responsive lens. And I can end with a few steps that can guide social workers or any other people interested in doing anti-oppressive work. So step one entails a lot of honest self-reflection. I always have my students read an article by Barbara Heron, and she says we must reject our claims of innocence. And so what this means is we must acknowledge and take responsibility for the role that we play in the inequities that exist in our society. So to do this, I have a few questions that I think are really helpful to get us thinking. First is, how does internalized white supremacy impact the way we view ourselves and the way we view others? How does it impact our view of policies and practices? How do we individually benefit from the system? 
and how do we participate in maintaining the system that benefits white, particularly white elites? And after we reflect on that, I think the next step is to ask ourselves, how do we break our habits that reinforce this, the status quo? How do we change our behaviors so that we no longer participate in the maintenance of white supremacy? And third, how do we ultimately dismantle the white supremacist system and instead implement an equitable system for all? And so finally, after that reflection and critical thought, it's time to take action and to live that change every day. And for me, I think that, again, it brings me back to we must first admit the reality of our world. And when I look at this, the issue of immigration, through this human rights lens, it's important to recognize that we live in a truly dangerous time. And we have not made the kind of progress in civil rights that most of us would hope for or believe that we have. Our reality is that we live in a time where many overt forms of oppression and discrimination have surfaced in much subtler but equally harmful ways. At the same time, we live in a time where many of the older, more overt forms of oppression and discrimination are now resurfacing. We live in a time where women and people of color are not equally represented in our local, state, and national governments. We live in a time where women continue to make far less than men in the workforce, and this list can go on and on. The reality is that we live in a time of injustice. And for us to truly take a human rights lens and make change, we have to acknowledge that although the white supremacist system did not begin with us, but it is our job to work throughout our lives so that this injustice will end. Thank you, Deb and Ashley, both so much for engaging in this conversation today and your insightful thoughts. Thank Thank you, Mary. You've been listening to Deb Ortega and Ashley Hanna discuss the DACA program on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.